ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. We are going to do something a little bit different this week. On each episode, as you know by now, we introduce you to a new podcast from somewhere around the world. But this week, we wanted to engage you, our listeners, on the dramatic events unfolding in Afghanistan. The collapse of the US-backed government there and the return to power of the Taliban. And so we are going to share with you a foreign policy live event that we did this week on that very issue. These events are for subscribers only. That's just one of the many benefits that you get with a subscription to foreign policy. But as listeners to this podcast, we wanted to give you access as well. So what you're going to hear is our editor-in-chief, Ravi Agrawal, talking to two experts who have spent years in Kabul over the past two decades. Lynn O'Donnell and Ashley Jackson. They are two of the smartest analysts around when it comes to Afghanistan, and many of their stories have appeared on our website. They share their insights with Ravi on why the Afghan government collapsed so quickly and how the Taliban will rule in the coming weeks and months. So here is that conversation. You'll hear Ravi asking listeners for questions. This event went out live to our readers. So what you're hearing is a recording. So unfortunately, you won't be able to engage with Ashley and Lynn. For that, you do need to be a subscriber. Okay, here's their conversation. Hi, everyone. Hello and welcome to a foreign policy live event looking at what's next for Afghanistan. My name is Ravi Agrawal. I'm the editor-in-chief of foreign policy, and it's my pleasure to be your host for the next 30 minutes. FP Live discussions are where we bring experts to discuss issues in the news and to answer questions posed by you, our FP subscribers. I have two terrific guests to talk to today, and I'm going to introduce them shortly. Remember, we want to take your questions. It's a perk of your FP subscription that you get to ask questions directly to the world's best experts. So click on the Q&A button on Zoom, send in your questions, or you can email web at foreignpolicy.com. Okay, so what a week for Afghanistan and also for the world. On Sunday, in the space of just a few hours, the Afghan army deserted their checkpoints around Kabul. President Ashraf Ghani fled the country, and before we knew it, the Taliban had taken over the presidential palace. It was all so simple and so fast. In a speech on Monday, even President Joe Biden admitted that the sheer speed of the Taliban's takeover had surprised the White House. The question now, or I should say the questions now, is 
What happens next? What will Taliban rule look like? What is the role of the so-called transitional council? And now that the United States is leaving, who fills the void? What role will the likes of China, Russia, Pakistan, and India play? So many questions. We're going to try and attempt to get some answers to you. And to do that, I have two fantastic guests. Ashley Jackson is co-director of the Center for the Study of Armed Groups at the Overseas Development Institute and is the author of Negotiating Survival, Civilian Insurgent Relations in Afghanistan. Ashley's based in Oslo, but she's lived in Afghanistan for many years, from, from 2009 to 2012, and again from 2017 to 2019. She has been a frequent contributor to foreign policy and an expert that I've counted on for uh, advice in Afghanistan for quite a while. And we also have Lynn O'Donnell. For readers of FP, you'll be very familiar with her work. She's been reporting extensively from Kabul and around Afghanistan for foreign policy this year. And before that, she just managed to get out of Kabul on one of the last civilian flights out on Sunday. Lynn has spent many years in Afghanistan. She was previously bureau chief in that country for AFP and for AP between 2009 and 2017. Let's get started. Len, I'm going to start with you. I know we've been having a little bit of trouble with your connection, but we'll give it a shot. Um, you've been on the ground now reporting for us these last few months. Was the fall of Kabul on Sunday a surprise to you? And if not, at the very least, was the speed with which it fell a surprise on the ground? Len? Hi, Ravi. I think that if um, you'd asked me that three months ago, I would have said it's going to be a long time yet. Uh, but by late last week, by Thursday, um, it was pretty obvious that uh, the fall was escalating. Um, I, booked, I, I booked my tickets out um, uh, two weeks early because I was in Herat, the city in the west, the capital of the province of the same name that borders Iran, and um, I spent time on the front lines there with the warlord uh, Ishmael Khan and the uh, uh, armed forces of the security security directorate. And um, I I went in for forty eight hours, and I ended up staying five days because um, really the the presence of the Taliban was ping ponging in and out, and it looked pretty clear then that if um, if they, they couldn't hold Herat, and it was clear that they weren't holding it, that um, the fall of Herat would open up a pathway to Kabul. And so I gave myself um, two weeks, 10 days, and, and left, as you say, on the last commercial flight out of Kabul on Sunday morning. And really, I don't think my timing could have been better. Well, I'm just really glad you're safe, Len, uh, even as you're continuing to report uh, for us on Afghanistan, but not actually inside the country. Uh, Ashley, let me bring you in. One thing that still kind of puzzles me is why the Afghan army fell so easily. After all, I mean, we know there were 300,000 odd Afghan troops, uh, although unclear how many of them actually existed uh, other than on the books. Um, and in comparison, there were only about 70, 80 odd thousand Taliban fighters. And as President Biden has said in the last few weeks and months, the Afghan army was, according to him, the most, the best equipped, one of the best equipped armies in the world. So what's your sense of what happened here? Uh, hi, Ravi and hi, Lynn. Um, you know, I, I've looked at President um, 
Biden's comments as, for lack of a better term, gaslighting. I think we've known for a very long time that the Afghan army, despite you know the millions upon millions that have spent, been spent on training and equipping it, is not capable of holding the country simply because the Taliban has advanced. I mean, as I'm just sort of said, it's advanced even on these government strongholds was able to sweep through most of the country in May, capturing 200 of the 400 odd districts in the country. There were already signs that there were trouble. And if that wasn't enough, you can go further back and look at Sigar uh, reports, the special inspector for Afghan reconstruction. You can look at uh, assessments that were public or were leaked uh, that indicated that the Afghan army and police and other defense forces would not be able to hold the country. But I think one thing we also have to keep in mind is that there appear to have been a lot of negotiations, that people are very pragmatic. Um, when, when the war really starts to shift over the past, let's say 40 years, you've seen these sorts of deals happen and you've seen people make well-informed choices about their future. You know, some of these districts that were taken by the Taliban reportedly had, you know, 10 fighters maybe, like 10 Taliban fighters. Wow. It wasn't a lot of, I mean, there was fierce, fierce fighting in a lot of places. And I'm sure from her, uh, Lynn can, can speak to that, but in a lot of places, you know, these troops were not well equipped, they were effectively surrounded, maybe hadn't been paid, didn't have fuel, didn't have reinforcements. Some of the places I've been in Helmand two years ago were in that situation. Um, so you can only imagine what it what it's been like now, actually after the, the beginning of the withdrawal. And so you can imagine uh, the calculations people make and the Taliban saying, look, if you surrender, you won't be hurt or right. knowing the Taliban's coming and then you know, preemptively leaving. We don't know how much of that happened, but it does appear to be a factor. Oh, that's, a, that's a great point. And for listeners on this call, I urge you to read uh, some of the pieces we have up on foreignpolicy.com, um, looking at, for example, the role of contractors who left in the last few weeks, uh, the fact that uh, deals were struck, the, the role of corruption as well, uh, in terms of uh, Afghan army members not being paid and therefore more susceptible to, to just hand over their weapons in exchange for money and, and security and uh, uh, you know, a surrender of sorts. Um, uh, all of that up on our website as well. Um, Lynn, I'm curious as to um, your sense of what's going on uh, today. Uh, there have been reports of uh, you, you know, the, the Taliban shooting at some protesters. Give us a sense of, you know, how that's playing out um, and whether uh, the situation could get worse. Uh, do you foresee uh, serious unrest uh, in parts of the country? Well, it's very difficult to know what's happening outside of Kabul because the Taliban have uh, pretty much killed um, open and uh, free journalism as they've rolled across the districts. Um, many of the journalists who work in the provinces are now um, in hiding, staying in safe houses in Kabul. So it's very difficult uh, to know uh, what's happening in places like uh, Kandahar and Khost and um, Helmand, etc. Um, in Kabul, it seems to me that 
aside from the propaganda of the Taliban, we've changed, we're going to be nice to women. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty much a, a reign of terror, uh, not to exaggerate it. A lot of people I know are in hiding. They say that the Taliban are going door to door. Uh, they are intimidating people. They're beating them up. I don't know of any disappearances yet, but that certainly happened in uh, Kandahar and Herat and other parts of the country. Um, my sense is that uh, there is also some effort, Amrullah Saleh, the former first vice president, deputy to former uh, President Ghani, is also uh, uh, talking with uh, in the Panjshir Valley with uh, Ahmad Masood, who is the son of the uh, line of the Panjshir, the big resistance leader, and he has come out on social media and declared himself to be the rightful president. Um, that augurs... Uh, dangerously for a, a, a you know a um, a resistance um, um Muhammad Atta Noor in the north and Dostum they came out also on social media at the weekend and said we're here we're alive we're safe um I think that you might start to see some rumblings of a um of a, a, an insurgency, if you like, amongst uh, people who feel um, that they have a lot to lose. They've been very vocal uh, against the Taliban. Um, on the ground, um, uh, there is no security. When I was on my way to the airport on Sunday morning, around about 5, 5.30, all security, which went under the name of uh, Ring of Steel in um, Kabul had just disappeared. Um, uh, it was obvious, we were saying before, that something was um, about to give. Um, that means uh, that there is a, an element of lawlessness that will only grow. For the last few weeks, people have been flooding into Kabul from other parts of the country, fleeing the fighting. Uh, Kabul is a pretty, um, it's pretty strained in its services anyway at the best of times but when it has people just flooding in nowhere for them to stay camping in parks uh, the closure of the border posts uh, crossings over the last couple of months has meant that um, imports are restricted so that means uh, food supplies fuel supplies uh, inflation in Kabul is running at around 10 to 20 percent already we're looking at the possibility of food shortages fuel shortages, rents are on the rise. Um, this really, and the temperatures during the day are 36, 38 degrees, 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So really what you're looking at is um, a compounding of uh, very uh, strained uh, circumstances, very frustrated and fearful people, and that will lead, I think, to civil unrest. Now, what the Taliban are able to do with that um, remains to be seen. Are they able to calm um, feelings, or um, are we just seeing the the, the turbaned gunmen on the street uh, driving around in the Humvees and, and um, armoured cars of the uh, former military presence and the police um, they're just going to be marauding they're stopping people on the roads on the way to the airport they're searching cars they're taking people's belongings and burning passports you've also got people who are disguising themselves as uh, Taliban and they are robbing people so there is um, there is a bubbling under of what I would expect would be um, uh, serious trouble that could erupt into um, uh, armed violence in the not too distant future. That really is a, a dire picture you're painting. Um, again, uh, for our viewers, happy to take your questions if you uh, post it on Zoom. Uh, I can put it to Lynn uh, and Ashley, or if you email us, 
uh, at events at foreignpolicy.com. Um, and I want to remind our viewers again, um, between Lynn and Ashley, we're looking at 15 to 20 years of lived experience in Afghanistan, uh, reporting um, on this story and, and really going out and about and speaking to, to regular people, to the Taliban as well. Um, Ashley, um, you wrote a terrific piece uh, this week for the Times examining what Taliban rule will look like. And you have a lot of experience uh, in this area as a writer, but also as an academic. Uh, and so I want to ask you, what do you make of all the things we're hearing from the Taliban this week, where they appear to be showing some restraint? Uh, in TV interviews, they're calling for the rank and file to show humility. Uh, they're saying that there will be no retribution. Um, but reports we're hearing from the ground and uh, given some of what Lynn has just said, um, it doesn't seem like that's quite the case. Um, this isn't quite Taliban 2.0, is it? Well, I think there's no such thing. And I just say that in part because I think we've misunderstood the Taliban for a really long time uh, and effectively, I think we need to back up and look at what's just happened and how the Taliban has evolved since the 1990s and what all of that means. Now, this happened so quickly um, that I really don't even think the Taliban expected to march into Kabul uh, at this pace. And you can see you can see that in their actions. They're trying to calm people. They're trying to assert authority, and they're very quickly starting to get frustrated with their inability to do that. And that, as Lynn hinted, I think really spells trouble um, because they are the Taliban. And if, you know, if there are signs of resistance, we've seen this in the shootings against protesters in Jalalabad today, if there are signs of resistance, the Taliban will move quickly to quell them. But I think also an important point is, you know, they built this kind of uh, parasitic parallel shadow government, which of course I wrote, wrote about a long time ago for, for foreign policy. Um, and that was, that was a tool of the conflict. That was something they stood up really to gain territory, to um, gain a foothold through things like their Sharia courts, uh, establish a presence and sort of, you know, really consolidate control and cut the civilian population off from the government in many ways. That is not the same as having a government in waiting. They are now in charge of almost all of the, the country, yet now they have to form a government. They have to provide services in a situation which Lynn really um, articulated was already strained, is worsened by, by the Taliban advance, uh, by the closure of borders, by inflation. And the, the budget of the national government or the, the government that's just seems to be disintegrating um, is 80% international aid. And that will decline, right. if not disappear. So what will the Taliban, how will they meet that sort of challenge? These are not World Bank technocrats like Ashraf Ghani. How are they going to grapple with all of that? That I think is something that you know, they don't even have an answer to. And just a, a sort of a follow on from that, Ashley, I'm, you know, so much of government and governance is, you know, understanding supply chains. So being able to have a message from the top that then trickles down and is actually followed by regional leaders and local leaders and village leaders. Uh, that is what government is. Um, uh, one can argue that that is exactly what Ghani's government failed at, but do you have any sense of, of whether the Taliban is cohesive? So if we hear 
um, one thing from their spokespeople on the BBC, what guarantee is there that uh, offshoots or uh, lower down uh, the chain somewhere in uh, you know, a local area that Taliban uh, sort of commanders will actually listen to their leadership? Yeah, that's a very good question. My answer would have been different if you asked me three months ago, right? <laughs> I mean, again, to, to echo what Lynn said in the beginning, like the, the game has kind of changed here. Taliban, I think, does have fairly strong command and control in general, uh, in military terms. That said, over the past few months, they have taken an immeasurable amount of casualties. I think uh, thousands have been killed, but we don't know, right? So that has really disrupted command and control. They've also moved. So you've had new fighters from elsewhere moving into districts, moving into cities that they're not familiar with, that they may, may feel threatened by, antagonized by, and then react. And I think what we're seeing, you know, a friend who lives in the middle of, of Kabul, just, just where I used to live, said on his street, the checkpoints around sort of where we, we lived, there are Taliban from Ghazni, from Kandahar, from Wardak, from uh, Baghlan. There are four completely different areas of the country have converged, don't know each other. So what actually are the command chains? Who is actually in, in charge of this? And it's going to take a while for the Taliban to sort that out, to actually you know, build a government because that's what they need to do. Um, and, and very, 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 very quickly without, it seems, any external support, um, without a stable situation in which to do so, they're trying to, it seems, calm the, the population. I think that's what we saw during this very slick kind of um, press conference they had yesterday. It was a message of control, don't worry. And I think that's seeing that through the, the lens of the Taliban, they're, they're desperate to assert control. But of course, their leaders aren't, do not appear to be in Kabul. They have not assumed power. I think there, there are pros and cons to that from their perspective. They look more consultative. They look like they're you know, trying to embrace things. But there's a power vacuum right now. That's the reality. And that, that, that is the worst outcome for Afghans. The right. longer that vacuum goes on, the more uncertainty, the more people taking advantage of it, the more chaos. Speaking of that power vacuum, Lynn, uh, tell us a little bit about the Transitional Council. Uh, who's on it? What role are they going to have in the coming days and weeks? Um, yeah, Ravi, from what I can understand, uh, we have a, a trio of um, a senior political leaders who've decided that, is, that it is their role uh, to help form a, an interim authority. That's uh, the former president, Hamid Karzai, um, Abdullah Abdullah, who's been wafting around for many years as uh, foreign minister, uh, putative uh, prime minister that never actually happened, the head of the, um, uh, the delegation for peace talks in Doha, which worked out so well. Um, those three uh, have formed the coordination Shura, and uh, they uh, intend, from what I can understand, to talk with the leadership of the Taliban um, and uh, try and bring together all of the disparate uh, political forces across the country in um, some sort of fully inclusive uh, government. I think it might be wishful thinking. I think that they were also uh, behind uh, the fall of the government. Uh, the Taliban made it very clear um, earlier this year, probably last year, time has, you know, stretched 
um, uh, to the point where I can't remember anymore. But um, I think uh, probably within the last six months, the Taliban made it clear that they wanted Ghani gone. And he effectively became an obstacle uh, to peace, um, hubristic, uh, micromanager, very unpopular. Um, I think that uh, this uh, troika of um, Karzai, Abdullah Abdullah and Gulbuddin Hekmatia decided that the only way to move forward was in cooperation with the Taliban leadership from Doha and, um, and get rid of Ghani and that's what they've done. Uh, what they, how successful this will be when you've already got uh, regional leaders uh, talking about um, uh, insurgency and um, in Saleh's case, claiming that he's the rightful leader of, of the country remains to be seen. Um, I, on the command and control thing that you just mentioned, Ashley, I think that um, I've always looked at the the ceasefires that the Taliban have been able to call their three days here and their Eid there um, as, as an indication that there, there is a centralised, a much more centralised command and control system than we probably give them uh, uh, credit for. Um, and I also think that one of the things that isn't being um, uh, highlighted enough is the role of uh, outsiders uh, on the battlefield. There's a lot of places in the country where people are saying that the Taliban that come in um, are led by outsiders, whether they're um, Arabs or Pakistanis, Chechens, Uzbeks and Tajiks from Tajikistan. Their ranks also include um, uh, Uyghurs from China. There's, there's a lot going on there. Um, and I think that the complications that um, we've already, uh, and complexities that we've already um, hinted at are, are very much a factor for how it proceeds in the future. We'll be back in a moment after this short break. Hi there, listeners. I'm Dan Efron, Foreign Policy's Executive Editor for Podcasts. I bet that you love podcasts just as much as we do. And we want to hear from you. Let us know what podcasts you recommend, and maybe we'll feature them in Foreign Policy Playlist. Reach out to us by going to foreignpolicy.com podcasts slash foreign policy playlist. There's a link right up top where you can share your recommendation with us. We'd love to hear what you're listening to. That's foreignpolicy.com slash podcasts slash foreign policy. Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and Seek the truth with an open mind. See playlist. Let me ask you both uh, a difficult and I guess personal question as well. Um, uh, and I want to come to questions from our audience. We've got many coming in. Liza Nurt, Jean-Jacques uh, Arzalier, I see you and I'm going to bring your questions in right away. Um, but you're both women. Um, you've both lived in this country. You have personal ties in this country, you've seen and heard stories of uh, girls and women's lives changing uh, to a great degree over the last um, 
10, 15 years, especially in the cities. Uh, and now things are going to change. Um, just uh, at a personal level, um, Ashley, I'll start with you. Um, um, you know, how do you feel? Uh, and, and, and what do you think is gonna happen to women and, and, and girls? Yeah, I mean, I honestly can't answer how I feel right now. I think like a lot of people, that's a complicated one on the, on the not only about my, my female friends and just everything, but I, I think there's an important point to make about uh, Afghan women and the kind of voices we hear and the experiences we hear about. A lot of the work that I did a couple of years ago was around uh, women's perspectives and trying to understand the Taliban's point of view on women and um, their policies and then how women experienced and, and felt about that and felt about peace. And going into Taliban areas that had been so hard hit by the conflict. I mean, at one end of the spectrum, you have these areas that have been battered by airstrikes. Um, these aren't women who make the, the news or are able to really speak out. Um, they suffer the Taliban restrictions because they were already living back under Taliban control. Um, but at the same time, they're suffering the brunt of the day-to-day -day violence, the night raids, airstrikes, losing uh, family members, and so on, which is a real, it's a contrast to the women in the cities who now fear obviously losing everything that the international intervention brought them in terms of protection, rights, jobs, opportunities, all these kinds of things. And so I think we have to consider women in Afghanistan as an incredibly diverse group. Yeah. But even among those politicians and um, a lot of women, I, I remember talking to Shukriya Barakzai, former ambassador to Norway, but also ran uh, schools under the Taliban, a female journalist, a really fierce parliamentarian. You know, her, she was very pragmatic years ago saying, you know, listen, the Taliban are our brothers. We may not like our brothers. We have to live with our brothers. They have made that point to us. We have to incorporate them. We have to find a way to work with them. And I found that really interesting. And I think there are a lot of people, including Fadia Kufi, who is also another parliamentarian on the government negotiating team, saying similar things, you know, and not, not excusing the Taliban, not, you know, none of this Taliban 2.0 language or any illusions about how they may or may not have changed. Um, but the fact that the violence and what this war was doing to their country was, was the real problem and was that needed to change that level of insecurity. And indeed, that's, I think, what I heard from a lot of women in rural areas who may not have liked the Taliban, may not have, you know, um, felt able to fight back on some of the restrictions on their lives, but felt that, you know, the violence needed to end, the international forces needed to leave. That was the real problem. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, I mean, that's a very rambling and partial answer to your question, but just to say it's, I feel it's all very, very, very complicated. Yeah, I hear you. Um, and we, uh, we interviewed Fazia Kufi recently, um, uh, you can find that interview on, on our website. Uh, Lynn, I'd like you to weigh in as well. I, I just, again, uh, cannot imagine what it, has what it has been like uh, to live through this uh, and to cover this story as a woman. Well, um, when it comes to women, I think that um, they're in for a pretty rough time generally. Um, we had been hearing a few months ago uh, reports, anecdotal reports that weren't 
uh, verified that uh, in areas where Taliban gunmen were um, taking control, uh, women were at the top of the list as war booty, if you like. Um, girls were being taken out of school and the girls' schools were being closed. Women were being forced out of their jobs and sent home, uh, told they had to wear full hijab when they left their houses and only then with the um, company of male relatives, a real back to the future situation. Uh, but also uh, one of the things that we were able to verify was um, demands for lists of the names of women and girls and widows of um, uh, uh, security forces uh, fighting men um, who were told they were going to be married off to Taliban fighters. Um, this is a form of sex slavery and ultimately ethnic cleansing um, that really is uh, quite terrifying. I don't think that we're going back to the future. I think that it's a, it's a much worse and a much more vicious um, regime that is a coming. And uh, women are right to be um, afraid and angry about it, but they're not the only vulnerable group. Um, Hazaras, who are Shia, mm. are also incredibly vulnerable, and they've been um, the subject of uh, uh, massacres in the past. Um, uh, so government workers, people who were, who, who were with, um, uh, uh, worked for foreign embassies, whatever, there's so many vulnerable groups. Um, yes, women are one of those vulnerable groups, and, and of course, they're more than half the population, um, but I think that, um, from my perspective anyway, I, I would rather think of um, Afghan, Afghanistan as the whole of its population rather than yeah. saying women are more women are, are this important um, and possibly implying that um, others are not. Um, the vulnerability is really um, across the board at the moment, and and I'd like yeah. to think that everybody is going to be taken into account. Um, uh, in in what's to come, in what I believe is is to come, yeah. I hear you on that as well, uh, and and it is complicated. Uh, women are not a monolith. Uh, Afghanistan's not a monolith. Uh, these are great points you're both making. Okay, I've promised to bring in some of our viewer questions. I don't want to leave them out. I'm going to name check a few people, and I'm going to try and combine uh, some questions into buckets. Uh, Sarah Wong uh, asks if the Afghan withdrawal is close to a Saigon moment for President Biden or more like Dunkirk. We've heard many uh, similar historical comparisons uh, in the news media over the last few weeks. Uh, um, Colin Lawrence asks um, if you could explain what the political consequences are uh, for, for Biden's presidency. Um, uh, do you agree that uh, the uh, withdrawal was uh, poorly ex executed? Um, let's try and bucket those two together. Um, Ashley, do you want to try and a quick answer if you have one? I mean, I, yeah, I think I'm looking at some of the other questions that have, have come through and it's, it's sort of, um, a Saigon moment, I guess. <sighs> I wonder if the American people will care in a couple of weeks. I wonder yeah. if this will stick. I'm not there right now, so I, I, I don't know. I think it, yeah, it's obviously made an impact. Um, but I, I really wonder if there will be consequences because the bet he has made um, and the bet Donald Trump made as well in starting this process, if you will, uh, is that the American people simply do not care. They have not really remembered that there is a war going on 
in Afghanistan for some time. And you know what, they were able to establish, um, if not a ceasefire, some protections, which meant that uh, US forces hadn't died for some time before this withdrawal uh, started to happen. And I think he's probably correct in that political wager. Nobody wants yeah. to go back in. Nobody wants to go back in. Uh, and it's yeah. been strange to see in the UK, some of the kind of saber rattling about, well, global Britain, where is global Britain on the streets of Kabul? Not, really? <laughs> you know, like, no, that's not, um, I think we're all aware of, of what that, that means. And even the pledge to increase aid that was made, I think in the parliament, um, aid was increased back to the levels it was at last year before the cuts that's how much they increased aid um so it's all very cynical to me this kind of uh all of a sudden people are concerned uh, i know the situation is much more drastic than people believed it would become but i would be i would be hard pressed to believe that the biden administration didn't put all options on the table and didn't envision a scenario like this full well before deciding to do exactly this so. i agree and and also you know if, uh, for those of you who watched president biden's speech on monday um it was targeted at the american people in terms of you know a lot of the language he used which was to say you know let me tell you straight let me let me let me fess up with you he was honest in that the speed of the the fall of kabul surprised him um but but he ended up presenting it as a binary stay or go and the answer to that question is go for most Americans. So even though I think he's uh, dipped a bit in the polls today, there's a morning consult poll uh, by Politico, which doesn't look great for Biden, but I, I, I buy the theory as well, Ashley, that, that I think this is a, a blip for him uh, and that the American public just really wanted to get out. Um, let me ask you both a couple of uh, questions that um, will play to your, your expertise on Afghanistan that we'd love to draw on. Uh, Jean-Jacques uh, Arzalier's question about whether there is a large enough middle class uh, in Afghanistan now uh, that would uh, change the way in which the Taliban would act today versus uh, in the late 90s. Uh, so more of an economics question. Um, and then also um, Liza Noyant's question about um, the economy and how, you know, around about 80% of uh, uh, government revenue is coming through from aid money. Um, Ashley, you said earlier that this will decline, but not entirely disappear. Or maybe you said it will decline if not disappear. Um, you know, so what kinds of revenue sources um, will the Taliban draw on? I'll throw this out for both of you. Lynn, maybe if you'd like to take a stab first. Sure. Um, the Taliban leadership have been doing the rounds of the region. Uh, red carpet treatment in early August in Beijing. Uh, China has long had its eye on uh, the resources, the natural resources, and um, uh, it owns a copper mine, a huge copper mine, the second biggest deposit in the world, just uh, south of Kabul, that it paid $3 billion for on a promise of $20 million of, uh, of rents to the government, which have never ensued. Uh, China is the biggest 
largest uh, consumer of copper in the world and it's holding on to Mezinac in order to control supply and price. Uh, it's a venal partner. Um, uh, it also wants to build uh, railroads uh, across uh, Afghanistan uh, in order to get uh, the goods that it makes on its eastern factory belt um, uh, to its European markets faster. It has big plans um, uh, to basically to draw Afghanistan into its belt and road and to uh, uh, program and uh, turn it into a um, what it has done with Australia into um, the mine in its backyard. Um, uh, I think that if uh, the Taliban is astute in doing deals with its neighbours uh, for um, economic uh, its economic benefit, and it's already said it's not going to worry about the Uyghurs. They may be Muslims, but kill them. We're not going to complain as long as we get your money. Um, I think that that means that uh, the drying up of any spigot of Western aid will be more than made up for from the rest of the region. Um, I also think, though, that um, the guilt quotient shouldn't be underestimated and that uh, the scenes that we've seen, the Saigon moment, I do think it's a Saigon moment and we all look for cliches in the media, um, uh, will, will lead to uh, uh, aid flows um, uh, continuing from uh, Western governments into into um, into Afghanistan in the future. Um, at the moment, there's a lot of apologia going on. You've got the, um, the head of the British Army, General Sinek Carter, saying today, Taliban have changed, uh, they're more moderate, blah de blah I think that that is uh, giving us notice uh, that, uh, as Ashley said, nobody wants to go back in, uh, but we have to virtue signal and we'll do that with our cash. Um, is there a big enough middle class? Um, I think the middle classes have their money outside the country. Um, I think they have property outside the country and that um, there will be a decimation of the educated, the well-heeled um, and the, uh, the able. We've seen in visa programs from uh, European countries and the United States, um, a brain drain that is sponsored um, rather than uh, calling on um, uh, the Taliban and whoever the next leaders are uh, to make sure they stick with the constitution and uh, honour uh, our own values over the last 20 years that we've um, uh, imposed on um, uh, Afghans um, uh, to respect human rights and uh, freedom of, of uh, information and association and all of that sort of stuff. Rather than that, I think that uh, we're going to see um, a, a gross uh, apologia. Uh, we want stability and whatever it takes. Um, I, I, I really don't think that uh, the Taliban are going to be without money. And if they are going into a, an inclusive government with the likes of um, Karzai and Hekmatyar and Abdullah, uh, then uh, they will become the respectable face of um, Afghan authoritarianism and uh, recipients of, mm. of continued largesse. So, you know, um, economy-wise, uh, how's it going to change? The Ghani um, uh, government, all his uh, cabinet have been uh, stuffing their own overseas bank accounts with aid cash for years and years, which is why some people in the country don't have shoes, no paved roads, no running water. Um, even in Kabul, uh, the drains are overflowing. You know, I mean, what, what's going to be the difference? I, I just can't see the difference. We've gone way over uh, my promised 30 minutes, and that's mostly because it's, it's rare for me to get both of you together uh, and to get to sort of quiz you on a country you know so well. Um, Ashley, uh, before we go, any closing thoughts? Is there anything else you think that we 
we should hear from you on. And also in the coming days, um, where do you see uh, the story headed? Uh, there's so many different angles in terms of, you know, what the Taliban does, but also the role of all these other countries, uh, you know, China and Russia, of course, have kept their embassies open. Uh, Pakistan has long been a very influential player in Afghanistan and will continue to be so. We have an interview um, with Pakistan's uh, ambassador to DC that just posted on our website. Very interesting and I urge everyone to read it. But also then uh, the role of Turkey in terms of receiving refugees, Iran's role, um, Central Asian countries will end up playing a part as well. Um, what's your sense in the coming days of things to look out for, questions you're going to be thinking about? Yeah, I think, you know, we touched on some of this already. I think there's already a sense of the Taliban potentially starting to lose control or a scenario in which that starts to happen. And you, the next few days, if they manage to strike a deal, as Lynn said, and, and get enough people on board to be respectable, that means no one has to cut their aid. It means life can resume. It means banks can re all of these things can re life can restart. So if the Taliban is savvy enough, and if these actors play along, we could have a sense of stability, and you could see a lot of um, a lot of this uh, apology and this Taliban 2.0 narrative start to shape mm -hmm. media coverage. Um, I would be very skeptical of all of that. There are things happening that we're hearing about that aren't making the papers. Aren't it's a, a situation of, of extreme confusion right now. Um, but it is really important to be skeptical of everything, every picture you see retweeted, every piece of information, and every narrative that is being crafted now, because people are manipulating that. And for you know, whether it's the British government or whether it's uh, Pakistan presenting this benevolent face about, you know, all it's going to do. I do think the regional angle and some of FP's recent coverage is really underexplored and really important to understand. Um, but I don't think we're going to see a lot of that in the mainstream coverage because I'm still getting media requests that are like, would you write a Taliban explainer for us? Really? Like now? <laughs> so I think... I think we're not going to see the kind of sophisticated, critical, mainstream media coverage that we need to see to understand the situation at the pace it's moving. Um, and the last thing I would say, because I'm sh I'm sure I've definitely run over the time you you've probably allotted me to speak, is I've been thinking about what I would tell governments and what I would you know how if you're a Western government that's had troops in Afghanistan, how should you engage? And I think it all needs to be guided by a policy of do no harm. Uh, it won't be. But what I mean by that is everything needs to be guided by whether or not it will harm or help a significant portion of the population. It is not about, you know, grandstanding at this point. Um, and, and there has been a lot of that. So I expect that to continue fully. But when it comes to working with what is there, you've seen UNICEF make comments about girls' education that have been slightly controversial, but I can completely see why they've done it because they are the only ones who are probably going to be able to keep however many girls in school the Taliban will allow. Um, so I think that's something to think about. What does a policy that actually helps Afghans right now look like? You're essentially arguing for the opposite of the great game, uh, which... Uh, uh, 
I wish and hope for, but I, I'm also very skeptical about it. Yeah, fair enough. I'm being, I'm, I'm desperately clinging to any sort of hope, but um, yeah, there you have as, it. As, as we need to. Uh, Lynn, very quick final thoughts from you. Um, what are the things you're going to be looking out for in the next uh, days and weeks? Um, I think that it's important to remember that the uh, Taliban are the world's biggest uh, drugs producing and dealing cartel, um, that a lot of what they've been fighting for is to hold on to that uh, drugs empire. They've been expanding out of heroin in, and into methamphetamine. Uh, the billions that they make out of this is what has largely funded their insurgency. It's a criminal cartel, um, no different to that which uh, was uh, running Colombia and uh, that in Mexico. Um, basically what is happening is the world is getting ready to get into bed with a an organized crime gang yeah i think it was one of your pieces that was titled uh the taliban is breaking bad breaking uh, bad <laughs> not uh, my headline but rather brilliant <laughs> yeah i think that was yeah. keith johnson's headline but your uh reporting um yeah. thank you for that I highly recommend yeah, highly recommend our readers read that. Um, I'm going to stop there because I could keep going. I'm very conscious uh, of both of your times, but also our, 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 our viewers' times today. Um, I urge all of you to look at our coverage uh, on foreignpolicy.com. Um, as I was saying, uh, there are several angles that we've been looking at. Um, you'll see a couple of pieces up on uh, India's stake uh, in Afghanistan, for example, one of the few countries um, that has not only made huge amounts of investments in Afghanistan and democracy, but has, you know, steadfastly refused to sort of engage with the Taliban until recently, um, but also the role of many other countries in the region, all of which now uh, are going to look to step in, look to shape the future of this country um, in ways that are often going to be oppositional to each other. Uh, this really may end up being uh, a new great game. Um, but at the heart of it, as we've been discussing, this is also a human story and one that, um, uh, you know, really is something that uh, for those of us who've been there or spent time there uh, is one that is alarming at this point, uh, especially for uh, not only girls and women, as Lynn pointed out, but also many other minority groups uh, in the region. Look out for more coverage of all of those angles of foreign policy. Um, we have a piece coming up on uh, the Hazaras, for example, written by two uh, experts on the issue. Um, so lots more coming up on that front. I'm going to stop. For more uh, on foreign policies events, go to foreignpolicy.com slash events. I want to thank Lynn and Ashley, uh, both of whom uh, have been reporting uh, from Afghanistan uh, for so many years uh, and also studying it and bring uh, a real sort of love for the country uh, alongside their reporting and analysis. So I thank them for that. And I'm also very glad that they're not in the country right now and safe. Thank you to Lynn. Thank you to Ashley. Uh, for those of you still watching us, uh, stay tuned for much more coverage in foreign policy, more events on foreignpolicy.com slash events. I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. It was my pleasure to be with you and to be your host uh, today. Thank you for watching uh, and thanks for your support. Goodbye. That was FP's Editor-in-Chief, Ravi Agrawal, speaking to experts Ashley Jackson and Lynn O'Donnell on the unfolding situation in Afghanistan. 
you can get access to similar live events and many other features by being a subscriber to Farm Policy. Go to farmpolicy.com slash subscribe. This show is produced by Zimone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. I'm your host, Amy McKinnon. We'll be back next week with another episode of Farm Policy Playlist. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about. You lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.